Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. It's Thursday. Uh, we have a big show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. There is a lot that is breaking right now in Israel and in Gaza. The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is on the ground there. We also have updates vis-a-vis um, -vis Ukraine and uh, what is going on there. Zelensky wanted to make sure he is not forgotten about as these things are unfolding. We've got developments here domestically as well uh, with uh, some movement maybe towards the Speaker of the House from the Republican Party. I don't yeah. know. It's a mess. I can't yeah. even say at this point, but we'll give you all of those details. Also, we wanted to talk a little bit about the discourse yes. in general, the rhetoric on both sides, which has been horrific, genocidal. I've never seen so much just like casual talk of genocide in my entire life, That's and I hard. genuinely do mean from both sides. So we're going to show you a little bit of that. We also have a new presidential contender on the Democratic side, um, Cenk Uger, founder of the Young Turks, who kind of sort of teased it. I would, say we got the I would say we got the exclusive. Yeah, we accidentally yeah. got the exclusive. Yeah. He brought it up on our show. We were like, at first I didn't know he meant it, and then yeah. he said it again. And I was like, wait a second, you're serious about this. Well, he made it official last night, so we'll play you a little bit of that. And also, um, we have some updates on RFK Jr., uh, the right now, definitely taking the knives out. And he went on for what he, I assume, thought would be another friendly interview with Sean Hannity. It went very differently. He's also launching a, a new ad that I have to say is really quite good. It's a it's a great ad. We're, we're going to break every, uh, all of that down. We have two 
two administrative things that we want to know. We hadn't been bringing it up, obviously, because of everything going on. But our crew is flying down to Atlanta tomorrow for that focus group. So just everybody stay tuned. We will have that Democratic focus group that is happening there. We'll be asking about Israel and Palestine, but there's a lot of other stuff, obviously, to get to as well. And then second, um, on an administrative note, we will not have a weekend show as normal as a podcast um, that usually posts along with those clips so that we can be available for breaking news that will happen over the weekend, just so everybody can keep that in mind. Thank you to all everybody who has been supporting us, though, uh, by the way, this week. It, it does mean a lot. We, we've been working very, very hard. None of us have been sleeping all that much and making sure that we're getting things very accurate and all of that um, for all of you. And we take your responsibility incredibly seriously. So just want to say thank you um, to everybody for that. We will have that focus group, some more exclusive content um, for everybody next week. But we will preview that um, as the clips roll in. And just thank you for enabling this. It's going to be higher production than last time. Yeah. And um, shout out to Griffin and Mac and the whole crew who mm -hmm. have been working overtime this week to, you know, do our best to make sure that we are providing you the most up-to-date and most accurate information that we possibly can in what is a very difficult and um, challenging situation to report on. All right, so let's get to the very latest with regard to uh, Israel and with regard to Gaza. Our own Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is on the ground in Tel Aviv in Israel this morning. He just gave a press conference with um, Bibi Netanyahu. Let's take a listen to a little bit of what Tony Blinken had to say. If you'll permit me... Um Personal aside, I come before you not only as the United States Secretary of State, but also as a Jew. My grandfather, Maurice Blinken, fled pogroms in Russia. My stepfather, Samuel Pizar, survived concentration camps, Auschwitz, Dachau, Majdanek. So, Prime Minister, I understand on a personal level the harrowing echoes that Hamas's massacres carry for Israeli Jews, indeed, for Jews everywhere. And I think that's emblematic of the personal connection that many Americans mm -hmm. feel to um, to Israel and have, you know, deep connections there, family there, relatives there, friends there, et cetera. Um, you also had in that same pre press conference Netanyahu emphasizing that he views Hamas in the same way that he views ISIS, mm -hmm. that he believes that they should be treated in the same way, that they shouldn't be dealt with, negotiated with. Any country that does deal with them should be sanctioned, that they should be, um, you know, completely sidelined and uh, kicked out of the nation of community which, you know, understandable sentiment there. We also have an updated number in terms of the number of Americans who were killed in those attacks. We can put this up on the screen. We actually have even more updated numbers as of this morning. Yesterday, the number was 22. Today, the number is 25. They say at least 17 other Americans are unaccounted for. We know that some unknown number also held um, hostage. So uh, that's where we are in terms of an American death count. Yesterday, Blinken made some interesting comments as well as he was preparing for his trip to Israel. And obviously, the Israelis are watching and listening very closely to what top American officials have to say. Um, you know, very important that they uh, continue to receive the endless support that we've always provided to Israel. Biden giving very clear comments. Um, you know, we will stand with Israel. We always stand with Israel, et cetera, et cetera, exactly what you would expect uh, any American president to say. 
And one of the things that uh, Blinken brought up was a little bit of a reminder as Israel now launches this all-out assault and siege on Gaza, and we're going to give you an update on that in a moment, that um, you know Israel should be holding themselves to the same standards of international law as all nations should be. So a little bit of a reminder there. Let's take a listen to that. And of course, what separates Israel, the United States, and other democracies when it comes to incredibly difficult situations like this is our respect for international law uh, and, as appropriate, uh, the laws of war. Uh, we do everything we can to make sure that in these situations we avoid civilian casualties. That is in direct contrast uh, with uh, Hamas, which uses uh, people as human shields. Uh, it um, actually seeks uh, to be, uh, put Palestinian civilians in situations uh, where they could be harmed. Sagar Hamas obviously murders. There's uh, no uh, no need to defend them or, or justify any of the atrocities they committed. For the U.S. to talk about following international law and making sure we don't target civilians, you know, people who have been murdered in our drone strikes might have something to say about that. And then with regard to Israel, even putting aside the apartheid state, even putting aside the blockade, even putting aside the occupation, the illegal settlements, etc., we already know they have announced a complete siege, which they have undertaken. Um, you now have all of Gaza without any electricity. This is 2.2 million people we're not talking about. These are not all people in Hamas. In fact, half of them are children. This is already collective punishment in violation of international law. You already have hospitals, schools, medics who have been actively targeted by the Israeli military. So for him to say, of course, Israel is going to follow international law. Well, they're already in violation. I think it's a, a point of pressure um, on them. And I'm going to save some of my uh, geopolitical commentary on how the U.S. and all of that um, for a little bit whenever we're going to talk about Gaza specifically, because I do think that there's some stuff that needs to be highlighted. In terms of the response, um, what they are in a situation right now, and I saw it put very eloquently, actually, uh, by Marshall, is that previously the Israeli state and the international community looked at Hamas as a political organization with a terrorist element mm -hmm. kind of within it. So Hamas would periodically carry out acts of terrorism, but this is, if, at the end of the day, we're not going to say legitimately elected, but it was elected, let's all be honest, by people inside of Gaza. Mm -hmm. And so it had some sort of political administration. This is something that uh, Christopher Hitchens used to talk about all the time as well. Now, though, after the attack, and specifically on a bulk of the casualties being civilians, the shift in the Israeli and the Western international community is towards the way that we used to look at ISIS, which is this is an eliminationist uh, tactic now, as opposed to one that can be managed. You previously alluded on one of our past shows about quote unquote mowing the grass. So yeah. to them, they're like, we have to eliminate Hamas entirely as both a military and a political entity. Now that's obviously an incredibly, incredibly difficult task. I'm gonna save some of the actual military commentary for what that will look like. But that's part of why they are in the difficulty that they are because ISIS did the exact same thing in our counter ISIS campaign when they would occupy the city of Mosul, uh, many of the cities that they took in Syria, they would intentionally you know, stack women and children on top of them and you know the international community and airstrikes for both by the US and also by a lot of the Syrian you know uh, fighters that we had there on the ground like we all have to be honest a ton of civilians were murdered you know in that uh, in that anti-ISIS campaign and that just underscores I think mm. the immense difficulty of all of this situation now you can't I'm not going to tell you which one is which that's for all of us really to decide well, but I just think that that's that highlights the you know the real the real pretzel that all of us are in, in terms of quote unquote, how you deal with all of this.
Well, and um, Hamas has no scruples, whatever. They're happy to use mm -hmm. civilians, including, you know, fellow Palestinians. Yeah, and hospitals. Ones, and no, doubt, no doubt yeah. about it. But also, Gaza is one of the most densely populated mm -hmm. places on Earth. And these people are locked in a cage. Like, they, they cannot leave. They are not allowed to leave. All efforts to establish any sort of humanitarian corridor have so far failed. Um, you know, negotiations with Egypt. I, I've seen mixed reports whether they're ongoing or whether Egypt has just said, no, we're Egypt not going to establish said no. an emergency corridor. Yeah. Um, and so when you have this densely packed population, um, you know, even if Hamas wasn't trying to use civilians as human shields, you have... Babies, families, children everywhere and, you know, huge high-rise apartment buildings. And as I said, in hospitals, I mean, they've been striking marketplaces. They've been striking mosques everywhere. There have been more than 2,000 strikes, and we'll get to some of the, the imagery from that. But one parallel I did want to draw out with uh, ISIS is, you know, in a sense, he's correct because both of these organizations have either, I mean, ISIS is directly comes out of blowback yes, from uh, American, you know, war in the Middle East and deep stabilization in the Middle East and war in Iraq in particular. And Hamas has also been bolstered and built up by the West and specifically by Netanyahu. I mean, we had that quote for you the other day yeah. of how he actively told his own party, uh, the Likud party, that, hey, if you want to thwart a Palestinian state, which he does, then what you got to do is build up Hamas. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get to some of the domestic Israeli backlash and rage at Netanyahu and his administration. Um, that is a key part of it that, you know, people have have seen that tactic. They've seen how Netanyahu and, and his ilk and his ideological brethren have thought Hamas was like a useful foil for them to prop up. Um, so there's also a blowback element here that that does actually track with the the creation of ISIS and how that all came to be. Um, we wanted to update you as well on there had been this report that uh, Egyptian intelligence officials were saying, hey, this attack didn't come out of nowhere. We warned you. We directly warned Prime Minister Netanyahu 10 days before this that something big was going to happen. And now uh, we have an American congressman, uh, Congressman Call, put this up on the screen, seemingly confirming, saying, we know that Egypt had warned the Israelis three days prior that an event like this could happen, three days before. We know that this has been planned as long as a year ago. And then, you know, when he's pressed further, he says, I don't want to get too much into the classified, but a warning was given. So Americans now confirming that Egypt had warned them. And recall, part of the uh, the context here is that Netanyahu, with this very extreme government that was very in favor of the illegal Jewish settlements, they had moved a lot of IDF forces from near Gaza to the West Bank to protect Jewish settlers. And that's part of why the response was so slow. That's also part of why this intelligence perhaps was dismissed out of hand because they were more focused on what was going on in the West Bank with the settlers than they were what was going on in Gaza. And the other thing I would say, even putting Sagar aside, these reports of the Egyptian intelligence and the you know very clear warnings that they are saying that they gave to the Netanyahu government, um, Hamas was conducting war games. They were like, and Israel knew about this. They thought it was just a feint, but yeah. they were out there conducting fake raids on villages and practicing many of the tactics that we saw deployed in their um, atrocities and in this massacre. 
So, you know, there's a lot of rage on the Israeli side at these clear failings that, yeah. you know, that we're learning more and As more about. As we said, we have a couple of clips we're going to show you guys, which are crazy from, this is not rally around the flag time inside of Israel. It's very, they may be rallying around the nation, but they are not rallying around, not uh, around Netanyahu, Netanyahu in the same way that Americans did for George W. Bush. To extra context on that, Congressman McCall was one of the chairman of the intelligence com uh, committees and actually received a classified intelligence briefing, but explicitly confirming outright that Israel was warned by the Egyptians. This was also backed up. Uh, Channel 13, Hebrew, and Israel also reporting that uh, Bibi Netanyahu's office had to secretly then walk back his comments and was like, yeah, actually they did warn us. But of course, they report that in Hebrew, um, that they didn't actually put anything out in English. That's another thing I want to highlight. Just remember, anything that comes out of English from Hamas um, and from Israel, it's intentional and it's directly targeted so that people like us can report on it, but they don't always tell the full story. And I've noticed this pretty significantly in terms of the efforts by putting stuff out in Arabic and in Hebrew, which is totally different um, than what we are getting. Part of the reason why it's extra difficult and we have to parse translations, make sure the translations are correct. There's also an interesting other backup to this Intel story. Let's put this up there on the screen. I'm curious, we could read this in a couple of ways. CNN uh, is reporting, quote, initially US intelligence suggests Iran was surprised by the Hamas attack on Israel. So we could read that as truth. Uh, we could read that uh, possibly as, uh, you know, we could read that as the actual thing that happened. The other way to read it, this is the uncharitable way, but I think we should have to represent this as well, sure. is America doesn't want to get into a war with Iran. Uh, and I, so um, I appreciate that. <laughs> by the way, that's the truth. I appreciate I that like and that. I, I also support it. <laughs> However, let's say if the facts said actually Iran helped plan you know, this attack, I'm not quite sure that America would report that currently with the domestic political situation uh, that's happening. So I'm skeptical um, that that is actually the case. I would much rather listen to the Israelis um, and to the Egyptians and the other people in the region who actually have buy-in into this situation. Now, from right now, the Israelis themselves have not said that there is any indication that Iran was involved in the attack. In fact, so they said they haven't seen They have the not indication. seen any yeah. uh, of that indication. So I am going to go off of them because they have a direct interest in this. I'm not saying I believe them, but I'm saying from if they had any indication, given Netanyahu's past, I mean, he came to our country to lobby against the Iran deal. This is a regime and a people who, if they believed Iran was directly involved, I do not doubt that they would say it. Now, we could also read it the other way, which is they are terrified of also fighting a two-front war. So even if they have direct evidence that the Ayatollah himself you know, ordered this attack, maybe they wouldn't report it because they're like, listen, we got enough on our hands. We got to deal with this whole Hamas situation. I don't need a two-front war with what is going on. But I, you know, even, I don't actually, let's just put the truth aside. Like, I think that's probably to a good end you know, in order to avoid a big geopolitical conflict. I'm just trying to contextualize what that quote-unquote intelligence could say. I do believe the Egyptian report, though. I do believe that 100%. The Egyptian report that been they warned now by the Israelis, has been confirmed by the Israelis, yeah. confirmed on the record by the Egyptians, and now confirmed by the U.S. Uh, intelligence. Because that, that's just a matter of were you warned or not? And that's an explicit, explicit failure. It, it shows you, too, that so much of, like, you can gather the intelligence. So much of it is up to the human beings to exactly. interpret what right. is relevant and what is not. And, um, you know, the the picture that appears to be painted here is that Netanyahu and his government had their own bias and interest in the West Bank over southern Israel and near Gaza. And so they dismissed it as like, oh, no, they're they're actually just interested in more work permits. And I think it's cool. We've we've got this handled. And so they didn't see what was right in front of their face. And as I said before, 
because they had redirected the IDF to the West Bank. I mean, the stories about how long people had to wait to get any, I mean, people hiding for 20 hours, Sometimes left, on their, hours. left yeah. on their own, fending for themselves in terror. And this is part of what is so shaken Israelis to their core because they had so much faith in their, and understand, I mean, how much money goes to their surveillance state and their intelligence apparatus and to the IDF. I mean, it's massive. All of the billions of dollars spent on the, the high-tech fence that was easily disabled by Hamas using $100 drones. So that not only failure of intelligence, but the failure in response is part of what has so shaken the Israeli public. Um, at the same time, back to the point about, you know, fears of a broader conflict and specifically fears of a potential war with Iran, which some U.S. politicians on both sides of the aisle have already been calling for. You had a warning issued from the president of the United States yesterday, uh, I would say directly to Iran, but they, he says, you know, any actors, let's take a listen to what he had to say. Made it clear to the Iranians, be careful. So be careful, he says directly there to the Iranians. Put actually Colvin up um, the 10th element here, A10, because it actually fits directly into this. Sagar and I were watching very closely yesterday afternoon, and we were getting ready to do a breaking news segment because there were false alarms all over Israel about potential second front of this war opened up by Hezbollah, which of course has Iranian backing. And the reason this was so significant is because you have tensions so high and you already have war drums beating from so many quarters. They were saying there's drone strikes. There were reports of new paragliders coming mm -hmm. in from Hezbollah. There were sirens sounding all across Israel. And I mean, this just underscores how high tensions were. They say in that article, of, as, as an example of how tense things are along Israel's northern border with Lebanon, a suspected airspace intrusion into Israel from Lebanon had Israeli authorities telling residents of northern communities to seek shelter until further notice due to human error, an app designed to alert residents malfunctioned adding to the confusion. This was a terrifying, you know, hour or so when we were very closely watching what was going on because it could ex be exactly the spark that leads to a much broader war. Yeah, remember, we've got uh, a carrier strike group that's always moving, already moving to the Eastern Med. We've got another carrier reportedly on its way. That's a hell of a lot of firepower. We've got the we've entire got Americans naval held group. hostage still. We've got Americans held hostage. We have uh, thousands of American uh, service members who are in Bahrain, not that far away from all of this. So things could jump off very, very quickly. Yeah, and that's what you said. Also, that's a great reminder. You know what? You know what I'm glad we did? We sat and we said, let's see if it's real. Let's see if actually what happens. And unfortunately, you know, immediately the all the reports were getting massively retweeted and shared. And I saw Israel is under attack. Two front wars confirmed. And then an hour later, they're like, oh, it's a false alarm. Another reminder, you know, per the misinformation block that we did uh, on our Tuesday show, be careful. Yeah. Wait for confirmation, triple confirmation, quadruple confirmation until you see it with your own eyes. Even then, make sure it's not deep fake. Make sure that it's not uh, deceptively edited. That is the difficulty of the situation we're dealing yeah, with right now. Yeah, and this was coming from Israeli yeah, officials. this was coming straight. That's, but still. <laughs> this was an official news source. That's sources. why we wait. But yes, we waited to have visuals and confirmation, and I'm glad we did because it was, you know, it would have been terrible if we rushed to air with like, oh my God, this is happening, and it could lead to this broader war when it was not accurate. So everybody just keep your heads about you as best as you can.
let's move on to what's happening now in Gaza, which is horrific. Um, we've got now over 2,000 airstrikes. You've got uh, Israeli troops massed at the border. Gaza is under a complete siege. That means no food, no water, no electricity. Uh, there is one power plant in Gaza. It is now run out of fuel. That means the entire 2.2 million inhabitants of Gaza, a million plus of whom are children, are without any basic electricity. That means no water. That means no sewer. That means no phone, no internet, cut off from the world, complete blackout. As I said before, there is no humanitarian quarter that has been established. I saw an update um, just recently from out of Gaza that the hospital system is completely collapsing. Um, they do have generators at the hospitals. Those are probably maybe a day, maybe two days away from running out of fuel. So anyone who has been injured in these attacks, who is seeking care, um, maybe showing up at a hospital system where already they're out of beds and very soon they will have no power, no electricity, no nothing. Let's put this up on the screen in terms of the latest death count on both the Israeli and the Palestinian side. Um, so 1,200 Israelis killed, uh, around 2,800 injured. In terms of Gaza, there's actually an updated number that I saw this morning, which was 1,350 Gazans killed in these airstrikes and about 6,000 um, injured. So, and remember, this is while Israel is still getting stuff together. There has not been a ground invasion. This is just based on the over 2,000 airstrikes, which have already occurred, which have hit, I mean, all sorts of targets hospitals, schools, um, marketplace, mosques, et cetera, based on the reporting that we have on the ground. Uh, we have a little bit of a report uh, from a, a journalist, Yusuf Hamash AP, who is there in Gaza and who can witness these strikes and give us a little bit of a sense as, of what this is like for the residents who are living there. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. This little boy was pulled out alive, his face blackened. His rescuer rushes to his mother. But before she can embrace her boy, she passes out in a shock. Anika becomes an ambulance. This woman is driving off before the boot can be shot. We've been told to get out, but where do we go? And how do we get there? There are more than two million people living here. Almost half are children. Families are rushing, trying to make plans. Every second matters. Gaza is under a complete siege. No water, no food, no electricity, and no escape. It's too hard. Some almost give up. But you can't stand still for long. Please, my family, they're just kids. We are not strangers to war but how it feels this time. It's hard to find the words. It feels like the world is collapsing. 
Many are confirmed dead, even more are missing. This woman cannot find her son. I haven't heard from him since Saturday. I haven't heard anything from him, nothing. In addition, we can put this up on the screen. We have confirmed now that a number of aid workers um, have been killed, 11 workers with the UN Refugee Agency, and uh, five International Red Cross members have been killed in Gaza. That's as of yesterday. Um, there are reports that um, that medical facilities, ambulances in particular, were hit in two different incidents, so directly hit, and four Palestine Red Crescent paramedics were killed in those attacks. So it's horrific. I mean, there's just, remember, the people in Palestine, in Gaza, were told to leave. They can't go anywhere. They're trapped. It's a very small space. Um, they are trying to flee to safety, but there is really nowhere that's safe. Yeah. And I mean, um, they have no electricity, no water, no power, nothing. Um, so it is, it's horrible what's unfolding. Breaking there. news uh, just now uh, from some leaflets. I can read directly, translated from Arabic in the Gaza Strip. Quote, to the residents of Beit Leha, the actions of the terrorist organization Hamas have pushed the IDF to put, act against the organization in the areas where you live. For your safety, you must evacuate your homes immediately. The IDF is not interested in harming you or your family members, anyone who is near Hamas terrorists or terrorist facilities will put their lives in danger. The issue um, is, if everyone can recall, is that there are only there is only one crossing into Egypt. That crossing actually was a place where Hamas, it turned out, had been keeping some weapons, and it was bombed by the IDF. That crossing remains closed via Egypt. The Egyptians refused to open it. As of now, there is no active, or at least like well or near the end situation to create a humanitarian corridor outside of Gaza. And that is the only place that it is. This is another area where I've, I continue to, I don't understand why the Egyptians don't get the criticism that they frankly deserve. They refuse to open it because they don't want to deal with the Palestinians. Crystal, their fear is that they believe that the Palestinians won't leave once they come over. And they're like, well, we don't want to pay for them. We don't want to deal with them. Then we're going to be Jordan. So where they're willing to just let them be locked up, despite the fact that they have all this, you know, fake rhetoric and all of that. Same thing. There's been no international pressure from Qatar, from Saudi, from Iran, from any of these countries that supposedly care so much about the Palestinians to get them out. Also, here's the other problem. Hamas has told all of the uh, people in Gaza, you can't leave. Don't leave. Uh, this is fake. They want to use them as uh, as civilian targets. That's why it's part of such a nightmarish situation. And I, look, I, we have to say too, look, these mosques, the hospitals, in some cases, they deliberately store weapons there because they want the headline of mosque destroyed, hospital destroyed. They literally had their headquarters inside of a hospital. I'm not saying though that, uh, I'm not saying then that the people in the hospital deserve to be killed. And that's why it's such a difficult situation. The Israelis obviously, I said previously, they're moving to an elimination of strategy. Here is my great fear, and this is from an American perspective, which is really what I think most of us should care the most about. Let's say you don't even care about human rights or any of that stuff. I am of a great fear that what will happen is very similar to 2014. In 2014, war with Israel and Gaza, 
around 1,500 civilians were killed, which is right around where we're at right now, inside, after a 50-day war. The IDF, remember, they mounted an invasion, and it did not go well. They ended up having to pull back, and they had to bomb the crap out of the area that they were working with. The international community, Europe and the Middle East, got inflamed to a point where the Israelis and Gaza eventually came to a ceasefire. And Crystal, that's very similar to the situation where we are before we have even launched a ground invasion. My great fear on this is I do not believe that the Middle East is in such a way that they would stand by uh, if, let's say, 10,000 Gazans are killed, which does not seem outside the realm of possibility. It probably will be more, let's be honest. I believe that that very easily could escalate to a situation where Hezbollah or Syria or Iran or who knows, I mean, uh, get involved. The other fear is that what will happen in Gaza could become what happened with Fallujah, where it became a magnet of global jihad. So don't forget um, what happened in a lot of these places, and also with Mosul after the uh, conquering of ISIS, is when it becomes like a passion's flame to that people, you know, Muslims from all over the world, and will could fly, you know, to the conflict or whatever, and insert themselves. And now we're in a full-blown you know, multi-year insurgency of what we're dealing with. I think it's going to be very, very difficult for the Israeli military to accomplish this military objective because Hamas is not ISIS. It's not just a small group that is hated. You know, the city of Mosul hated ISIS. Uh, most people did not support ISIS. A lot of Gazans do support Hamas. Uh, I'm not saying they deserve death, but I'm just being real in terms of what the polls are. Uh, and so that effectively would require a full-scale occupation. And if that's the case, and I don't know if the Israeli military or population is ready for that either. So all I see are nightmares ahead. Agreed. Um, I, all I see is mass death, but worse for our purposes is let's say 15, 20,000 Gazans are killed. Now, do you think Iran can hold Hezbollah back, you know, from fighting its internal enemy the entire time? Like, they follow orders, but only to a unlimited extent. Now we're in a war there. Now what about the carrier strike group? Do you really believe that the entire global Islamic population of 2.2 billion is just going to sit by while that happens? No way. Look at already what are the crazy protests that are happening all over the world. It could lead to inflamed tensions here. It could lead to terrorist attacks against the United States, against Israelis all over the world. So I'm just looking at this and I'm seeing uh, very much like it, it just seems so much like 2003. The rhetoric around that we're flying, which we'll talk about, so, so simple. Um, but, you know, 40th order consequences are very, very real. And I wish that we would be more considered. If, it were, if my uh, ideal solution, quote unquote, is we need to establish two things, a humanitarian corridor outside of Gaza and an international agreement or statement, something by Israel that they will not fully reoccupy and that the Palestinians can come back to their area and you know rebuild or whatever post-conflict. Then whoever remains in Gaza is just like Fallujah previously, free fire zone, you are part of Hamas, battle, game on. Even that has a lot of consequences, don't get me wrong, but that just seems like the only middle ground that we can get to. But I, I don't know. All I see is extreme danger um, in the uh, days ahead, especially for the United States. The only reason we're not in a war with Russia is because they have nuclear weapons. Iran, at least as far as we know right now, does not. And, you know, if things get to that jump off point where they got to with Ukraine not that long ago, yeah. you know, I mean, we easily could get into a war with Iran. That's a complete nightmare. And I just yeah. want to people to think like, Long term, think about those those kids, those families that you saw in that video. You know, you've got children now who are growing up whose apartment has been blown up mm -hmm. and they have nowhere to live, who are seeing 
friends, family, perhaps their parents, be killed in Israeli airstrikes. What do you think that their philosophy is going to be growing up? Like, what do you think that their approach is going to be as they become adults? Do you think that it's likely to de-escalate the situation? Do you think it's likely to lead in a direction of peace? Of course not. Of course not. And we've seen this because we've. this is, what, the fifth war that Israel has launched in Gaza, something mm -hmm. like that? This is the fifth war. Quote, unquote, mow the grass. I mean, how has that worked out? And for all of their expenditure on their surveillance state, and you see the way that technology in some ways, you know, technology and desperation um, has leveled the playing field in terms of what these rogue terrorist criminals are able to do and the damage that they are able to inflict. Like, this is not in any way a sustainable situation. It's no way for Israelis to live. It's no way, certainly, for Palestinians to live under blockade and under siege. And... I just, I genuinely can't wrap my head around how there is so much less concern for the Palestinian children, innocents, who are being killed now than the Israelis. And my heart breaks for the Israelis. You know, the outpouring of, of support for the horror that they experienced is, is actually a, a beautiful thing to see that, that global, you know, solidarity against those sorts of senseless, barbaric atrocities. But now that's exactly, like, one atrocity does not justify another. And that's already what's happening. I mean, already complete siege. Imagine what that's like to live with no power, no water, no food, no hospital, no ability to live, to leave. And you're 2.2 million people, over a million of whom are children. And that's what we're now watching unfold and, you know, much of the world is cheering it on. Um, very little restraint. I did see uh, Erdogan in Turkey, not someone I give a lot of credit to often, but, you know, he his applying well, pressure. Well, he's, he's an Islamist, that's why. And um, uh, Well, yeah. applying pressure, also trying to be involved in some sort of, like, diplomatic discussions as well. Um, but I don't think you have to be a quote-unquote Islamist to just care about the humanity of the, the people who are on... Um, you know, both sides of this board. I, I don't so. disagree, Crystal. Yeah. I, I, I think what, part of the reason why this is impossible to escape is, and from what I've seen in Israel, this is an existential fight for them. They're moving to eliminationism. And they point correctly to the Hamas constitution says that the death of the state of Israel. They're like, look, they don't want us to live. They literally want us to perish. We have no choice but to destroy them. And that's uh, genocidal. Uh, well, no, I'm I mean, not talking about Palestinian. I'm talking the, about Hamas. They're like, we have no choice yeah, but, but to destroy Hamas. Okay, yeah. listen, I accountability for Hamas, 100% on board with that. No problem there. But when you say destroy them, I mean, they're not just destroying Hamas. They are killing indiscriminately civilians. And so, as I said, one atrocity does not merit another. And look... For my, the, for me, the you know the the core rot here outside of you know the terrorists who have their own agency and the atrocities that they committed, but it's an ethno state that has you know increasingly moved to being an authoritarian police state vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, and I don't know how you that this is just not a sustainable situation. You are going to continue to have this violence, death, terror, chaos. And that's why this is so difficult to watch unfold, because as you said, I just don't, see, I mean, Netanyahu and his party have already taken a two-state solution off the table. Mm -hmm. 
Well, most Israelis like, don't really believe in it anymore. They don't. Yeah. But the reason they didn't believe in it is because they were they were led by their you know their leaders, people like Netanyahu, to believe that oh this is the status quo, this is going to be fine, it's going to be sustainable. I mean that's been completely shaken at this but to point. To be honest, Crystal, the Palestinians don't really believe in it either. I mean this is where we also have to be honest. No, a majority vast, do believe in yeah, a two state the vast solution. Vast majority of them support Hamas, and that's just like when we're in that situation. Even in the West Bank, my, I was looking at polling. Hamas got a fifty-three percent approval rating inside the West but Bank. But a majority of Palestinians the, yeah. support a two state solution, and think about it from their perspective. How much have time they've spent? A lot of time, including Hamas, as negotiating with the Israelis. Mm. And they feel like they have never been further from any sort of a peace deal. And they're right. They are right. So so then, and you know, any sort of global protests in favor of like BDS or trying to apply economic pressure, oh, you're an anti-Semite. And so this again is like the horrors and the atrocities here. There is no justification for the tactics. But yeah, that's that's what drives people to support a terrorist organization like Hamas is because you feel like, okay, we've been trying to negotiate and we've never been further away from getting out of this situation. The issue is they've never accepted a two-state solution in the past. I mean, they've had opportunities in 48 and in the 70s, in the 60s, they didn't support it. They thought that they, and look, I mean, I blame the Arabs as much. They always uh, told the Palestinians, said, don't accept a two-state solution because we're just going to conquer Israel and then we'll give you guys your land back. And then they got their asses kicked in the Yom Kippur War and we've basically been in the status quo since then. So, Look, I don't disagree, and there's plenty of criticism, I think, on the Israeli side. I, I, I absolutely break for Palestinians. I mean, it's horrible, that video that we showed. I don't think it's all that simple, though, um, is that in terms of, like, they just simply support it. We are in a situation now where I think the truth is is that the vast majority of the Palestinian people support violent organizations like Hamas. Also, the lot of Israelis believe— but why? Well, yeah, I, I don't disagree not, with you, but we are where like, we are. Yeah. People are not just born. Think of those yeah. little kids. Like, what kind of ideology are they going to support? Yeah. You know, where does ISIS, where do terrorist organizations come from? Like, it doesn't come out of nowhere. And so, yeah, in a way, it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not simple. It's very complex, and there's complex history, et cetera. But it also is very morally simply when you just say, like, I am opposed to war crimes by Hamas. Mm -hmm. I am opposed to war crimes by Israel. And I see a lot more concern on one side of the ledger than the other side. I see a lot more care and concern for one type of life over another. And that part, I just can't, as you could say, the politics are complicated and coming to solutions, all of that is true. And the other part that I think is really simple is I think that if you have a state that's based on being an ethno state, you're always going to end up in this horror of apartheid, which is exactly what they have inflicted even on the um, Arabs who live within Israel, um, you know, the occupation of the West Bank, the blockade of Gaza. I mean, these are atrocities and in violation of international law that Israel's committing all the time. And to me, that is also very morally clear and morally wrong. So in a way, yeah, it's complicated, all the nuance, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to also have some moral clarity about holding both sides to account for their violations of international law, the atrocities they commit and the war crimes they commit. And we're going to talk more about the discourse, like the fact that there are so few people who can just say that and say it clearly and be comfortable with just condemning war crimes when they happen is one of the most troubling things I've ever seen. The amount of just outright genocidal rhetoric about like, finish them, punish them, destroy them, or the Israelis deserve to be massacred at a music festival because of what their government has done. 
it's despicable. I, I just can't even wrap my head around I, it. I think it's horrible, and I, I agree. I guess I, I'm only just trying to represent that I wish that people had the same level of concern, I think, that we're trying to represent on the show, but they don't. And when they don't, it's going to lead to mass bloodshed and to violence. And we have to kind of get into the minds of who these people are. And, you know, the reason why we are where we are here is both populations genuinely feel as if they cannot coexist with the other side. And there's a lot of blame to go around, absolutely a ton. Uh, the more the crackdown has happened in Israel, it's you know created more polarization inside of Hamas, which has led to more polarization inside of Israel. Uh, and you know I don't think, this is gonna be the most difficult, probably, moment diplomatically to solve. The past ones, Yom Kippur and the Six-Day War, we were dealing with nation states like Egypt and Jordan and others. Here, we're not dealing with that. We're dealing effectively with one state and then a terrorist organization, which also happens to be in charge of 2.2 million people with a full-blown humanitarian crisis. And then the states are all surrounding it as well. So I don't know. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, this is why it's so difficult to talk. This is why nobody has been able to solve it so far. So there you go. Let's move on. Uh, we want to talk about Israel, actually inside of Israel, and the tremendous blowback that is happening to Prime Minister Netanyahu, despite the fact that he has now created a coalition government. Let's put this up there on the screen. Benny Gantz agreed to form a wartime coalition government with uh, Netanyahu. This is from the Times of Israel. There, some of the more controversial elements are actually sitting out the coalition over the demand that the prime minister actually oust the uh, actual defense minister and others. For now, all, quote, non-wartime legislation has been suspended, including the judicial overhaul. Prime Minister Netanyahu and the unity leader announced Wednesday that they will have this coalition government that will remain as a national emergency government akin to what happened in the UK um, under Winston Churchill during World War II uh, and will remain in place until they believe that the uh, quote-unquote time is over. Now, we don't yet know uh, what all of that is going to look like, but it does come at a time when there is tremendous domestic outrage inside of Israel at Netanyahu. And just to give you an idea, these are some of the statements that are even coming out of the former defense ministry. Can we put this place up there on the screen? Here, for example, the former defense minister says, I have called on the opposition not to enter the government with Netanyahu, but to instead demand his resignation. He was warned several times. He did not let the chief of staff speak to the cabinet. There is no trust in him. How can you lead a people to war like this? Every hour he remains in office is a detriment to our country. That's the former defense minister, a right-wing defense minister, I would add. Also, the former Israeli military chief of staff also called on Netanyahu to resign. And one way that we know that this is organic also is from some of the videos that are coming out of Israeli ministers getting shouted out of public places. So here is one video that we're gonna be able to play for everyone. Let's put it up there on the screen. Here we have the Israeli environmental uh, minister who's visiting a hospital. She's being shouted at by one of the uh, people who was waiting there. She says, you're disrupting here. You're not welcome here. She says, I was a good girl, wasn't I? I was a good girl. You ruined this government. Now a nurse is getting involved. You ruined the negotiations. Get out of here, get out. Now it is your turn. We cannot stay here. We will help right, left, united people without you. And this man is shouting here, you ruined the negotiations. You ruined it. Get out of here. 
just to give people an idea of how angry, and that's a member of the staff there, you know, at the hospital. This next clip that we're <coughs> about to show you is absolutely heartbreaking. It's the same thing of a relative in the hospital being interviewed about the situation. And we can go ahead and we can put this up there on the screen. What you can see is an, a, a, a couple there who is grieving you know, in the hospital. And this man is shouting, repeatedly shouting at the camera. He says, quote, Mr. Prime Minister, go outside, face the media, apologize. A thousand people were murdered on your watch, sir. Where are you, Ben Gavir? You are the world champion in bullshitting. Where are you? Mr. Handgun on Twitter, we will never forgive you. Never. And you can see that's actually on a pro Netanyahu channel um, there, which is part of why the host ended up cutting him off. But you could see the absolute passion from this man. There are scenes like this breaking out all across Israel. And it's one of the reasons, things that we actually really wanted to highlight here on our show to represent that the discourse inside of Israel, Crystal, is so different yeah. than what is happening here. Here, if you said anything like that, you would be called an anti-Semite or something. Inside Israel, actual Israelis and Jews are like, no, this is a colossal military failure. It's almost like the reckoning that happened in America for George W. Bush after WMD, except it's happening in real time immediately after the attack. Yeah. And they wise up because they know how much they have had to sacrifice, how much their government has been, you know, how much their society is driven by security. So when you give up all your civil liberties, all your kids have to serve in the military, when you can't get into a mall in Israel without getting wanded down, and then a thousand of your citizens, which is equivalent to almost 20,000, you know, per capita here in the US, just get murdered overnight, you're like, okay, I'm done. And I think, you know, in America, if we had, let's say we had another 9-11 attack after 9-11, there would have been a similar reckoning. It's only because we were so shocked at what happened at the time that yeah, we didn't. And, and it was a different era, yeah, it was different. It was different, different. No yeah, social media. Right. Like yeah. it was just a different right. moment. Also, I don't know if we would have had the, quite the same just rally around the flag and you can't mm. criticize the president. I don't know if it happened today, if it would have quite the same effect. But yeah, in that respect, it is very different. The reaction is very different from 9-11. I mean, I think there has been, you saw all the, um, you know, all the IDF reservists and members who had been protesting the Netanyahu government. Now they've said, okay, we're mm -hmm. coming back. We're getting called up. We're going to report for duty, et cetera. So in that way, you've certainly seen this national unification, but not rallying around Netanyahu. And, you know, I don't doubt that there's like very disparate opinions about the, the root causes of the problem and who's to blame and all of that. But it seems to me that you've both got like a left of center critique and yes. a right wing cr critique, which is like, you weren't strong enough. You didn't do enough. You were playing footsie too much with Hamas. You weren't, you know, you weren't cracking down on them and treating them always as the terrorists that they really are. And so you have a sort of, you know, both left and right factions in Israeli politics who are disgusted with his government right now. Remember, this is a man whose supporters styled him, quote unquote, Mr. Security. Yes. Like that's his whole thing. And perhaps more than anyone else in Israeli politics, he has been responsible for this intentional shift away from the previous era of Israeli politicians were, you know, going through that was the Oslo Accords and they're going through the process to try to come to some sort of two-state solution with the idea that that would be the real way to achieve security for the Israeli people, which I personally agree is a much better direction. Um, his approach has been to intentionally try to thwart those talks, make a two-state solution impossible 
through means such as the um, expansion of the illegal uh, settlements, which makes, you know, stitching together any sort of Palestinian state, again, virtually impossible, and convincing people that, no, you're good. There's no security threat here. Like, we've got it through our high-tech walls, through our um, through the IDF, through intelligence, through all of the surveillance tech. You don't have to worry anymore. Those fears about security are in the past. I've got you covered. And so when this happens and it's such so horrible and it's such a shock to the system and there's so many manifest failures, both in terms of listening to the intelligence that he was clearly given from uh, Egypt and perhaps from his own intelligence services. We don't know about that part. They were doing conducting yeah. war games in Gaza that were ignored. And then the response is a complete failure. So if your whole stake your whole claim to why you should continue to hold power in spite of the fact that he's been this incredibly divisive figure in Israeli politics is I will keep you safe. Yeah, this is going to be a, a strike to the blow, uh, to the core of your legitimacy as a leader. Um, one other thing I wanted to say, Sagar, about that mm -hmm. unity government, because I think the ins and outs of this are um, are kind of important. Uh, the other opposition leader, Yair Lapid, has, um, has decided to stay out of the government for now. And the reason is that one of his demands is that these two outright very extreme um, minister, Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Kavir, uh, he wanted them sidelined. You know, that's who that irate man relative mm -hmm. who was um, speaking there. That's the person he called out. Ben Gavir, among other things, is um, known for having called for an entire Palestinian village to be wiped out. So just outright genocidal talk. Uh, Netanyahu refused to completely sideline them from the government. Uh, they are sort of like, you know, not directly involved, but they're still included and so Lapid is staying out of the government for now. You have uh, Haaretz, which again is like the New York Times of Israel saying, no, don't form a unity government. Netanyahu needs to go first. And that almost is a daily drumbeat coming from left of center press. So there is a real, um, you know, there's a real reckoning happening right now within the Israeli public too about how they want to move forward and how they're going to ever feel safe and secure again. Yeah, it's. I think it's important for people to understand, you know, Israel is a very complex country. And I mean that in terms of their domestic population. You basically have secular Jews, this is like Tel Aviv, people who live in Tel Aviv, who work in tech. These people, many of them are even atheists. They're culturally Jewish. They're very, uh, probably more akin to like Americans, cosmopolitan who live in New York City, for example. Mm -hmm. Then you've got like people who are religious, but who are still, actually a lot like Netanyahu, somebody who is religious, who is an Israeli nationalist, but who is not ultra-Orthodox or Orthodox Jewish. That is very much like a Netanyahu type figure. The people who I first described, they are very much of like older Israeli society. They are the ones who would support a peace process in the past, support people like the Gantz government, not Netanyahu. The middle type, they break both ways depending. The real like wild card in Israel is the ultra-Orthodox population, which in 25, 30 years ago was, I don't know, maybe 20 something percent of the population. But there's a huge fracture in society because the people I described, the right of the right of center and then the left of center people, they are the ones who actually serve in the IDF and in the military. Right. The ultra-Orthodox don't serve in the military. They get an exemption. And they also all have like nine children. And a lot of them are on welfare too. There's actually a ton of resentment, intra-resentment. Yes. And they don't even live together, you know, inside of the country. Those people I'm talking about who are really ballooning
growing the population. A lot of those folks are the ones who have really come to play a bigger role in Israeli politics because they have a lot of votes, to be honest. And that's who it, Netanyahu has been catering to. And these are the folks who are the ones who are like, you know, everything is driven by the Torah and the Hebrew Bible and like, which areas can, can be controlled by Jews. They don't care as much about politics. They're also the ones who are much less likely to support a Palestinian state. They are much the ones much more likely to support, you know, the West Bank, the settlers, again, coming up with all of this justification. So that's what people need to understand, I think, about the internal pressures that Netanyahu himself faces. And I think that, the like you said, those right-of-center secular types who served in the IDF, they are going to be furious because they're the ones who, you know, really agreed with yeah. the security state. And then yeah. the left-of-center folks, to be honest, really, the people inside of Israel who are the, you know, the capitalists, the people who are the billionaires who do all the tech work and all of that, they too, I mean, they've had to basically live, you know, in a politics where they have very little representation over the last decade. And then to still have the security failure, I think there actually will be a great secular empowerment inside of Israel after uh this entire conflict, because they were the ones warning about all of this. They they hate, they're also, the left center people are very much more likely to hate the settlements. They're the ones who have always been warning about this. So there, there will be a reckoning. Yeah. At least I hope so. The last thing that I'll say here yeah. that I took note of, because he's just such a, he's got, whatever else you can say about him, the man has his finger on the pulse. Donald Trump was speaking to a group of, you know, of course, Republican uh, Jewish audience in Florida. And he was critical of Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. And I took special note of that because, I mean, the two are actually, you know, politically kind of similar. Netanyahu is like Trump, but a lot smarter. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as evidenced by the fact what he's been in power for like 16 years. I mean, this he's is- been, Yeah, he's been, Yeah, this is a man yeah. who has, he has done whatever needs to be done yeah. to get himself back into office. Remember, there were all these elections where they couldn't form a government and that's how he ends up in league with these incredibly fringe figures because he had to in order to get power back. And part of why he needed to get power back is because he was facing corruption charges that he needed to get out of. Sound familiar in the American political context as well. So anyway, um, Trump, very critical of Netanyahu in front of this um, Jewish audience in Florida. And so, again, just to give you a sense of how widespread the criticism is and how it's not just coming from left of center people, I thought that was very yeah. noteworthy because, again, He's one who, you know, has a sense of where audiences are moving, what they want to hear at a given moment. And if he didn't think that that audience wanted to hear that right then, there's no way he would have said it. So you I are, took note of that. You are 1,000% correct. At the same time, uh, here in Washington and across the world, the question is being asked, what about Ukraine? President Zelensky, being the chief person asking that question, put this up there on the screen. Zelensky is now asking to visit Israel, quote, in a show of solidarity. You might view it that way, Crystal. The other way to view it is, hey guys, please don't forget about me and uh, please don't let the Israel-Palestine conflict wipe my interests off the face of Americans, off the face of American legislators, probably more specifically, and the Biden administration. And that's pretty, maybe uncharitable, but it is almost certainly the way uh, that he and his administration are looking at it because behind the scenes, Crystal, there's been multiple reports that the Ukrainian 
Ukrainians and even those in Washington who still are, uh, you know, very much pro-Ukraine aid are like, oh my God, like we may have to choose, especially because we have a limited amount of weapons. Now people are definitely, there's going to be way more of a bipartisan consensus to send weapons to Israel. But what about, what are we going to do in terms of continuing to fund Ukraine? The White House and um, others have come up with a new strategy. Uh, here's their strategy. It's kind of a make sure you got to catch them all type thing. Let's put it up there on the screen. They are now That's going to lump Ukraine, Taiwan, border funding, and Israel in kind of an all-in-one type category Worse for, for Congress. Everybody gets their little pet issue. It's a little earmark strategy trying to support the overwhelming bipartisan consensus on Israel, then to try and get House Republican right-wing support on border security to get those who say that Ukraine is distracting from Taiwan and China's defense by putting in Taiwan funding and then shoehorning Ukraine um, into that. We'll talk a bit in a, in, in a sec about the speakership um, and how that is well being received over there, but it does show you that this is a big problem for Ukraine. They were top of mind for every international relations, you know, professional, for every national security person in the White House, for, you know, frankly, for the media, you know, and for the front pages of every newspaper in the country. That is not the case, and it is not likely to be the case now for some time to come, which is a big problem for them. That's what they relied on in order to continue their funding and in order to continue pressuring lawmakers to keep passing these extraordinary amounts of money for them. The Ukraine flags are coming down yeah, and the Israeli, and the Israeli flags are going flags up. Are yeah, going up. Right. And Zelensky is no fool. Um, not only is he, you know, publicly like showing his solidarity as a way of reminding like, hey guys, I'm here and I still need your help. By the way, he made a surprise visit to NATO headquarters in Brussels, urging them to maintain their flow of weapons, even as they say that much of the West turns its attention to the brutal outbreak of violence in Israel. Um, top NATO officials sought to reassure him but, I mean, he acknowledged, he said, of course, everybody's afraid that Western assistance could dwindle. And he also says, who knows how it will be? I think nobody knows with regards to whether the flow of weapons is going to continue. Now, on the other hand, um, I think while certainly media attention is going to shift away from uh, the Ukraine-Russia war um, and, you know, the liberal sympathies are going to shift and certainly the right is all in in terms of Israel, Given that you now have this funding approach on the table of, hey, let's tie it all together and get it through, mm -hmm. I actually think their chance of getting the immediate aid, this next package through, has probably increased greatly given both the speaker chaos and the fact that you have this new strategy, which I think uh, is very likely to succeed. I think you're probably right. I will say, though, uh, this highlights what I have been trying to say about Ukraine from day one, is this is going to come at the expense in the future of something, and now we're in that something. For example, if you didn't know, Israel, we had a massive stockpile of ammunition in Israel, both to be able to dispense if we ever wanted to, to the Israelis. Second though, so that we might need it in the event of a war in the Middle East, and we decided Israel was the safest place to keep the ammo. Well, guess who depleted a vast majority of that ammo and sent it to Ukraine? Well, now what? Are you gonna restock it? What if you need it? Let's say a war does break out with Iran. Well, oops, don't have the ammo anymore. Now what? The issue too, by tying Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, all of that together, they actually, in many cases, Crystal, they want the same stuff. So for example, 
Yes, uh, Patriot missiles is, a, is the perfect one. Well, guess what we sent to Ukraine? And guess what uh, Israel is gonna want as well? Also in terms of uh, there's certain type of missiles and uh, other uh, things that we've been sending to Ukraine, which also has been directly drawn out of weapon stocks that we were supposed to send to Taiwan. And this, let's put all of them out of this, Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. We also don't have many of these stocks that take years to replace. Now we are all learning that the world, and specifically weapons, is zero sum. When you give something to someone else, you don't have it, and then also the people that you may want to give it to in the future may not have it. So in the immediate term, you're probably right that something will pass. But that $100 billion that they wanted, I think that's gone. And specifically just because we don't, we genuinely, if we are involved in this right now, we do not have the weapons to be able to send over there. We don't have the defense industrial base to replace them in a timely fashion. This is the, probably one of the more precarious moments for the United States in literally decades from a defense point of view with three different places that all could flash and could draw us into a, a global world war all at the same time honestly, even more heightened than at some points during the uh, during the Cold War, just even though it may not feel that way because that was nuclear. And this is, you know, it starts smaller, but definitely could escalate. And I think that is why a limited amount of aid is very likely to pass, I do think, for Ukraine. But the days of their blank check, I do think ended the day that Hamas went into Gaza yeah. because I, of that reality. I think you're yeah. right. Yeah. And also, I mean, the reality of like where the media attention is going to be, yeah. where the sympathies are now going to lie. I do have to say one thing, just to make one point about this strategy of tying all these pieces together. It's like, it shows you when Washington, when the White House wants to get something done, mm -hmm. they figure out a way to get it done. Good point. I would take the border security plus child tax credit deal. Like, where's that deal? You know, I mean, this is a strategy that they use yeah. all the time to get things like Ukraine aid or Israel aid or whatever it is. They'll say, all right, here's a priority from the right. Here's a priority from the left. We're going to put them together and then everybody pass it. And that's the deal. Like, why can we never do that when it comes to good things for the American people? Child tax credit being a perfect example of something that supposedly there are some Republicans who are at least like open to and which had a clear, like massive impact on child poverty and was hugely beneficial and administered well and used in, you know, good ways that helped the nation's kids. Like, why are those deals never on the table. It's endlessly frustrating to me, but just remember that next time there's this learned helplessness in DC of like, oh, well, gosh, there's a, we would love to, but there's just not support for it. No, no, no. When they want to get something done, they act very quickly and they get it done. So remember that next time you're hearing that nonsense from any of these politicians. Here. All right, uh, listen, on that one, you have no, you are a hundred percent correct. It's astounding, isn't it? That that Israel and Ukraine aid can spur all these people to action. And as actually happened during the Ukraine invasion, baby formula gets put to the side. We figured it out eventually. How many kids didn't have any baby form? How many people were stressed out about that? And I remember I, I was actually very attacked for this and got into quite arguments. Crystal, when I was like, I'm, I was like, they care more about Ukraine than they do about American baby. People are like, how can you say that? That's outrageous. How can you not it's say that? Action speak louder than words. <laughs> Say whatever you want. And 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 look, we gotta blame some of the voters too. As you were talking about, I my neighbors are a great gauge. I'm like, all right, where are these people's heads at? Because they all work in the government, they work in the media, yeah. all these people, they work in the Pentagon, whatever. As you said, now the Israel flags, they're starting to go up. 
Ukraine flags, the Ukraine bumper stickers, the one lady who's got parking for Ukrainians only. Now there's going to be an Israel flag uh, right there. They only have a limited amount of attention. And the mo- it, it is, you know, quite literally zero sum in this case, especially when we're talking about weapons and aid. And also, uh, I think that if there was, an- there's no country on earth but Israel uh, that could have so surmounted Ukraine yes. like this because it has such heavy bipartisan support and lobbying power here in Washington than anybody else. Like if you were to put yourself up against anyone, you would never want to put yourself up against Israel whenever it comes to U.S. attention and U.S. funding and, yeah, just the overall U.S. military support. Yeah. Which, you know, like I, I have probably a conversation for another day. As to, I did lay it out though earlier about how this could easily draw us into a bigger war with Iran, which would be a total nightmare. Well, that's, and of which there's a massive constituency. I was going to say that's a good segue into what Senator Graham yeah. has been saying recently, isn't it? And people need to understand that this is a very real conversation. They want to go to war with Iran. A very sizable portion of the GOP, uh, frankly, probably elements of the Biden administration as well, as best exemplified by Senator Lindsey Graham, who has been going on television in recent days, calling this, quote, a religious war, indicating that it's some sort of holy war, putting us, I guess, against the side of Is- uh, on the side of the Jews versus Islam, and then also calling directly for strikes on Iran. Let's take a listen. I am tired of appeasing uh, uh, Hamas, apologizing for them. They want to kill Israel, so does the Iran. The Ayatollah wants to destroy the Jewish state. They don't want to coexist with Israel. This is not a land problem, a boundary problem. It's, It's a problem of you cannot live in my world. My God determines that you die. The Germans believed that the Jews were inferior people, and their goal and the final solution was to eradicate the Jewish people. Well, Iran and Hamas believes that the Jewish people should die as a result of religious teachings. We're in a religious war here. We are in a religious war here. That is the most dangerous rhetoric. It harkens back to George W. Bush and the whole like axis of evil. We're on the side uh, against it, specifically allying himself, it seemed at that time, against Islam. But so let's think about it two things. Uh, one way is this. There are 2.2 billion Muslims on the planet. I would rather not be at war with all those people. Uh, the other way to look at it too is this is now extrapolating from an area of national, like actual national interest to state actors, a terrorist organization versus a government, and then trying to blow it up into a much bigger thing. Yes. Now look, we'd also be idiots if we didn't say that there is some truth to this, right? Obviously, obviously there's a religious element too. Israel is a Jewish state. Hamas is an Islamist terrorist organization. Um, there are members in Israel who call for the total elimination of the entire Palestinian people. And there are people, a lot of Hamas doesn't believe that Israel or any of the Jews should be allowed to exist in the area called Israel today. So let's not pretend that that isn't all of that. but. Well, let's also not pretend that not by that by talking and embracing this type of thing, he's explicitly trying to put America into a global holy war. That, how can we not recognize, is a nightmare for us and is exactly what turned the entire Middle Eastern nightmare of 2003 Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. into the terrorist like wave that we had to deal with for over 15 to 20 years since then because we explicitly made it in the eyes of many Muslims some sort of holy war against America, and we fulfilled 
the greatest dreams of Osama bin Laden. That's right. Whenever we did that. That's and we bre breathed life directly into the jihadist movement at that time. At, after, the entire world really was with us on 9-11. So the worst possible thing we could do is feed directly into these very disgusting tropes. Lindsey Graham has never seen a war he didn't like, mm -hmm. right? One of the foremost neocons remaining in the Senate, and there are many of them, by the way, who remain in the Senate and are completely unreconstructed and would still defend the freaking Iraq war to this day. He is advocating, let's be clear, for World War III fought along religious sectarian lines. You all want that? Does that sound good to you? Does that sound like a great idea? I mean, it's, it's literal insanity. And he, I think, has gone the furthest, although I've heard some other things as well. But you see this from a lot of the neocons, the, the Nikki Haley's of the world. I heard some th similar things from Marco Rubio, a lot of uh, Republican figures in particular, who are really trying to make this directly about America, saying, saying things like, you know, Hamas wants to attack us here, which there's no indication of, but trying to call our security into question in, in an attempt to bring us into this broader war. So this is why we mentioned before there were these false alarms yesterday about a second front in the Israel-Gaza war and Hezbollah getting involved. And the reason we were so freaked out about it is because you already have so many hawkish elements, both on the right and in the Democratic Party. You saw Dean Phillips also calling directly for war with Iran, that, you know, you give these people any excuse, you don't think the media will pick this up and run with it? You don't think, I mean, the media is consistently, and this is on the right and the left-wing media, uh, the liberal media and the conservative media, um, consistently extraordinarily hawkish. So yeah, Lindsey Graham wants a global sectarian war fought and it is total insanity. And I have to think the American people are have a little bit of a different opinion uh, about how we should proceed from here. Inshallah, as our friends in the Arab world uh, might say. And just to totally clear it up, here's what he said when they're like, are you saying we should bomb Iran? Here's what he had to say. The money financing terrorism comes from Iran. It's time for this terrorist state to pay a price for financing and supporting all this chaos. Yes, if you're the Iranians, if we're up to me, this war escalates, I'm coming after you. I think this is what I'm trying to clarify here because I, I, I'm wondering us if Us and Israel, us and Israel. Us, the United States no, and no, Israel. No, I will be crystal clear. The United, so let me a just, let me just, between, um, let me just understand yeah, you, yes, just sorry. to be clear. You're saying yeah. that you would want the United States and Israel to bomb Iran, even in the absence you of direct it. evidence of their involvement in this uh, attack. Yeah. 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 You okay. got it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Iran country of uh, tens of millions of people, massive military, um, you know, more embroiled war in the Middle East. Uh, Iraq went so well. Why, why not just do the neighbor? Iran, by the way, this is the craziest thing. Iran is stronger than it has ever been before. You know why? Because we invaded Iraq. We took out their rival regional power. We basically turned the country over to them. They run it now. We don't run it. The entire like Shia majority is effectively ruled from Tehran. Hezbollah today is stronger than it was before the invasion of Iraq. The invasion of Iraq led to the Syrian civil war and the Islamist explosion, which was then, now Syria is a Iranian and Russian client state. Wouldn't they? We gave the greatest gift the world could give.
Uh, whenever we invaded Iraq. Not to mention that, uh, you know, the Iranian nuclear deal that the Obama administration negotiated and then Trump backs out of yeah. and then Biden never gets in back into. I mean, Dr. Parsi was warning us from the beginning mm -hmm. that that failure would in enable and embolden um, and empower hardliners in Iran. And that's exactly what happened. So um, I really like. How many wars would be we be in right now if it was up to Lindsey Graham? Uh, and remember, well, this is something Russia, we ran for. We'd be, Iran, certainly Russia, yeah. certainly Iran, probably uh, China. Yeah, maybe Ma know. maybe throw Mexico in there. I've never just heard for him fun. say anything on China, at least. Um, uh, you know, he'd love it. He probably it doesn't fit the same paradigm for Lindsey. Lindsey's more of like a civilizational holy mm, war type guy. Throwback. So, let's Bush share a neo. What's I gonna say? The uh, Iran is bad enough. <laughs> War, I'm laughing, but like war with Iran is a nightmare. I, I keep saying it, but I've read enough about what it would look like. And there were serious discussions actually at the time um, by Bibi, by the way, uh, who wanted to bomb the Iranian nuclear reactor site before the Iran deal, where the Obama administration, I think Jeffrey Goldberg wrote uh, an entire thing about it. Goldberg himself is a neocon and supports war, but he has yeah. some of the behind the scenes stuff that I recommend people go and read. And the Obama people laid it out to him in very real terms. They're like, all right, man, this is what's gonna happen if you do that. And it was like tens of thousands dead in a matter of hours. That's actually what it would look like. Remember, we have lots of service members who are stationed very near Iran in Bahrain. Um, they would all, you know, 100% be attacked. The Iranian military is a very capable force. Hezbollah itself, one of their proxies, one of the reasons why we should all pray that they do not get involved in the war in Israel is those, uh, you know, those rockets, those like piddly rockets being fired yeah. from Gaza, that's nothing compared to what Hezbollah has. Iron Dome cannot do a damn thing um, when it comes to what the Hezbollah is, what Hezbollah would be able to launch into Israel. And by the way, it also could attack us. Don't forget, we lost 300 Americans in Lebanon um, not that long ago in the 1980s. Though there's a hotbed and a long history of uh, the U.S. responsibly actually trying to keep itself out of it until George W. Bush yeah. came into power and knocked everything over. The one thing I will say to mm -hmm. end on a little bit of a hopeful note here in a very dark segment, um, a very dark moment mm -hmm. in terms of what's happening around the globe is the fact that the American officials and the Israeli officials were so quick to come out and knock down those reports that Iran was directly involved. That to me is encouraging because I don't know if it's true or not, but clearly like they're trying to avoid, that signals to me they're trying to avoid a direct hot conflict with Iran. But again, these things are not, the pressure can build very quickly in a way that American presidents find very hard to yes. resist, even if they don't directly have an interest in getting us into that, those wars. So Very true. Something to keep an eye on. Speaking of pressure and about how the impact already of the Israel conflict is uh, having on American politics, it is putting massive pressure on the GOP to wrap up its speaker drama, but not just quite yet. Let's put this up there on the screen. Steve Scalise uh, shocked actually yesterday and won the internal vote to become the GOP speaker nominee, designate, but he does not have yet a majority support. The thing, what happened is they had a secret ballot behind the scenes where what, Steve Scalise was able to get 113 votes, Jim Jordan was able to get 99 votes. The thing is though, Crystal, is that Steve Scalise's team got about eight to a dozen members to actually vote present. Mm -hmm. So if they hadn't voted present, 
and they would have voted for Jordan, it would have been a direct tie. So some smart uh, maneuvering on his behalf. Yeah, and keep in mind, Scalise is the whip right now. Yeah, he's so currently the this whip. is counting votes that's and whipping votes. That's what he does, and clearly he did it very effectively. Here. So he wins the uh, he wins the vote. Okay, that's uh, good for him. But the problem is, they immediately are like, "Great, let's go to the floor and let's get this wrapped up," because they kind of had an agreement that whoever voted, whoever won that vote, would then win uh, and would get all, all the unanimous consent. Didn't happen. Instead, they immediately shut down the vote on the floor. And people behind the scenes, multiple congressmen, are saying, actually, no, I'm not going to vote for Steve Scalise. I'm only going to vote for Jim Jordan. One of them, actually, is Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, who laid out her case against Steve Scalise. Here's what she had to say. Well, I think Jim Jordan is the fighter we need to be Speaker of the House right now. Our, our country's in crisis with our border situation uh, becoming such a grave national security crisis. Um, Jim Jordan, I think, is the guy for the job. You know, there's a lot of concerns right now. Some intel reports saying that we could even have a terrorist attack here at home. Uh, um, and we've already witnessed one in Israel uh, right now. And that's certainly a situation that we're all praying for as we stand with Israel. Um, but we're also, here we are still engaged uh, in Ukraine. Uh, this, this seems to be another foreign war that we're funding, funding their government with no end in sight. Uh, while the American people are suffer suffering under crippling inflation and possibly a looming recession with our economy. Um, the Speaker of the House is the hardest job in Congress, one of the hardest jobs in the country, and it's extremely demanding. Um, and it's very personal to me, and I say this with the most compassion. Uh, my father died um, in April of 2021 with cancer, and I like Steve Scalise, and I, I like him so much that I want to see him be able to put all of his time and energy into defeating cancer. And I say that um, with, with just hoping the best for him. You know, to be honest, I think that's a respectful and totally legitimate position. Uh, I, I, mean, was, I'm, I see you I'm doubting just, me. I mean, I'm just saying, like, you think it's so negative. Of course. I mean, he. But it's also not untrue. I mean, he is diagnosed with, with uh, was it, blood cancer. Yeah. He's undergoing chemotherapy. But he obviously made yeah. the choice of like, I'm up to the job. So for her to, in this very like paternalistic way, like, right. oh, I'm just worried about you. No, I mean, she likes Jim Jordan better. Yeah. He has the vibes that she mm -hmm. appreciates. He's more vocally anti-Ukraine. Like, to me, it's very naked, but it's sort of like, I find it sort of shameful to then mm -hmm. use his illness to, oh, I really have your best interest at heart. No, you don't. You just have your own like political agenda okay. at heart. Let's be clear about All it. All right. Well, you maybe you're right. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm too I'm too good hearted because I'm like, oh, that's sweet. Uh, let's put this up there on the screen from Matt Gates. He actually said Steve Scalise is better than McCarthy, but he'd also said the same thing um, for Jim Jordan. The thing is, is that uh, Jim Jordan, and this is kind of the twist. Jim Jordan has offered to nominate Steve Scalise on the House floor. But despite that, all the people who want to vote for Jordan are not following Jim Jordan, which just goes to show you how much of a complete circus this entire thing is. Here's the truth. It's not about Jim Jordan. It's that they want to either extract concessions or they don't back up Steve Scalise. Nancy Mace yesterday, she's she is a special one, as uh, Kevin McCarthy no. said. A true, <laughs> he had it right He on that truly one. did. She, yesterday she was like, I can't support Steve Scalise because he once spoke at a rally that David Duke has. I'm just like, what? Like, are you, who are you? You know, like, but you support Jim Jordan for speaker? Mm -hmm. What are we talking about? That, first of all, that's a ridiculous uh, thing in terms of the circumstances of how that all worked out. The other element that we wanted to highlight, though, is how big of a loss this was for Trump and how irrelevant he appeared to be in this entire process. Put this up there. Do not forget that he endorsed Jim Jordan 
hardcore six days ago. He said, Jim Jordan has been a star. I completely support him for Speaker of the House. Quote, he will be a great speaker and has my complete and total endorsement. He didn't even win a majority of the votes. I love so, how he goes on and on about know. his wrestling uh, his record wrestling. as if that's right. relevant here. Right. Yeah, that's totally okay. relevant uh, to this entire thing. <laughs> but it's fascinating to me that the House Republicans did not care at all what Trump had to say in this. And Trump actually appears to be a tertiary character at best in this entire saga for ultimately what will be the highest ranking Republican in the United States. Yeah, so true. So that's a pretty substantial loss, I think, for him. You know, I wonder what you think about the saga. I mm. feel like if he had, when he really has power is when he not only like affirmatively endorses someone, but when he rips the opponent to shreds yes, and right. makes that person toxic and nuclear. And he didn't say a word against Steve Scalise. So it makes it so that people aren't afraid they're gonna get like punished or right. smeared as a rhino or whatever if they backed him. And so that's why I feel like just just his like positive affirmative endorsement of Jim Jordan, it didn't really, it didn't scare people, it didn't really matter for them was my reading of the situation. Mm -hmm. No, you're right, uh, absolutely. It's interesting too that A, that he didn't matter, but also that the disparate concerns about Scalise run the gamut. You have more uh, Freedom Caucus types, they trust Jim Jordan, they don't really trust Steve Scalise because he's former leadership. Mm -hmm. They want to continue to back Steve Scalise, even though Jordan himself is like, listen, I'll back Steve Scalise. Then you've got the Nancy Mace types, or quote, a whole other story, as Kevin said. But you also have a few people like Ken Buck and others who are upset with both Scalise and Jordan um, for both saying that, who refused to say whether the 2020 election was stolen. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I can't vote for either of these guys. Didn't you have a couple of people saying, I will only vote for Kevin McCarthy? Yeah, a couple of people said I only vote. Most of them have come around and they voted for Steve Scalise or they voted for uh, Kevin. The point is, is that we are nowhere even close to electing a speaker. Steve Scalise may have won the majority. Personally, I don't think he's going to be the speaker. I don't think he gets to 217. Here's my other yeah. question here is, you know, this is all sparked by Matt Gates predominantly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it seems like he just like genuinely despises Kevin McCarthy and I think has this like personal issues over the fact that he's being investigated on ethics right now. Whatever. I'm not going to get in Matt Gates's head. I don't know what his goals are, but it doesn't seem like he's really achieved anything. Like, what has he achieved? Uh, chaos, his name and headlines, fundraising. Yeah, um, I mean, that's like, in terms of his stated goals about mm -hmm. like, we're gonna spend less and we're not gonna have Ukraine aid and you know, this thing he floated that, oh, maybe we'll get these like, actually reforms that I would support, right. like stock trading bans or whatever. I, I, it's right now, it doesn't seem like there's any kind of negotiations over any of that going on. So it really does seem like the only thing he's gonna get is Kevin McCarthy, who apparently personally didn't like out and someone else in but it's not clear to me that he's really achieved any of his ends. Oh yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you actually at all. Uh, in terms of the Ukraine aid, I do actually think he won a victory there just to show you that they could, you know, Kevin McCarthy was gonna put some sort of Ukraine aid on the floor. Up until Israel, I think Ukraine actually was dead in terms of aid. Now they might get something if they tie it forward, but don't forget, Jim Jordan came out and said, no tying Israel aid to Ukraine. He explicitly said, we're gonna do Israel first, and we're gonna pass that, and then we'll talk about Ukraine So then Gates later. should be supporting him. Well, you yeah, know? I mean, I, I agree. I mean, he's saying he's open to Scalise's The line, thing is, so. is that Scalise himself, Scalise is a chameleon. He's never said one public word about Ukraine. I've looked, by the way, in the last year. He has, he has never said anything. So if he has a sizable amount of his caucus that won't go for it, then he'll just quietly be like, no, we're not gonna tie it together. I think actually McCarthy was a lot more sympathetic to Ukraine aid than he originally led on. In that way, I do think it is a victory. And at the very least, those people, Marjorie and uh, Matt Gates, many others, opponents of Ukraine, Ukraine aid, they, they could prevail in this. So 
even though we talked previously where I do think something will come through, there is a chance that they disaggregated it and that it's only Israel uh, alone. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, I feel like a lot of the the heated rhetoric and the audacious goals of Matt Gates right now seem to have not not come to fruition. So anyway, it continues to be chaos. I genuinely don't know how it's going to shake out, who's going to end. It could be not either, neither Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise or Kevin McCarthy. It could be someone different entirely. You could end up with this dude. What's his, I always forget his name, McHenry. Is he the one? Patrick McHenry, yeah. Patrick McHenry. Could end up with him just hanging out in the spot for a while, and I hope then just not, deciding. I'm getting sick of these bow ties, Patrick. And then just deciding, like, yeah, yeah, we just decided we can't actually pass legislation with the temporary speaker of the house. Right. Who knows? But we'll keep an eye on it. All right, we wanted to talk a little bit about something we've alluded to here, which mm-hmm. is the general discourse on Israel and Palestine and this particular conflict, which has been at frequent times disgraceful and outright genocidal on both sides of the ledger. I have never seen so much casual dehumanization of whole categories of people in my life, and I've been on Twitter for quite a long time. So we thought we'd get into some of this discussion. One of the particular flashpoints here um, that has sparked a a real national outrage, and you want to talk about cancel culture, huge cancel culture on this one. Save the cancel culture. All right, okay, so is the statement put out by a coalition of Harvard students um, who were trying to remain anonymous. I'll put that to the side and we'll talk about that in a minute, but go ahead and put this Harvard statement up on the screen. So I think it's a coalition of 35, 34, 35 different groups, some of whom have actually backed off of it at this point. But the part that uh, folks really objected to, and which I also really object to, is they say, we, the undersigned student organizations, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence, okay? Entirely responsible. So they are erasing any sort of responsibility from the Hamas terrorists who actually went out and massacred innocent Israeli citizens, paraglided into a music festival and murdered hundreds of people, stormed into a kibbutz and murdered a significant proportion of the entire population. No, they don't have any responsibility? Really? It's crazy. And obviously you guys have heard my commentary. I'm highly critical of Israel. I think it is an apartheid state. I think the uh, occupation is illegal. The settlements are illegal. The blockade is illegal. The current siege is illegal. I think all of these things are horrible. I think what Israel is doing in Gaza right now is an atrocity. I would put it on the level of what Hamas did here. But to say they are entirely responsible for the massacre of their own citizens and erasing any culpability from the Hamas terrorists, I, that I cannot get down with. And so there was a huge you. backlash to I that. I wanted to ask you about it. And that's why yeah. yeah, we were talking about it on the call whenever we decided. Because I, you know, I work with you. Yeah. I know a lot of people who are left. I get it, you know. And I think what your position is entirely, um, not even defensible, but like, it's one of those where it, within the realm of conversation, I don't, I have no, I, you know, I've seen people like, oh, the crystals are pointing pro-Hamas talking points. I'm just like, shut up, okay? This That, that would be like saying that the state of Israel doesn't have a right to exist or that all Jews should die. So sh- just shut your mouth. I've seen it in terms of compassion for the Palestinian cause, but more importantly, like a desire to be able to treat this uh, a more of objective way and to look and talk about human life in equal terms. And I think that's yeah. completely legitimate and I think it is fine. I wasn't as, where does this shit come from? I, I don't understand. You know, you're pretty left. 
I, I know a lot of people who are lefties. Yeah. I see them, I follow them, you know, I've listened to them now over the years. They're working with you. None of them are taking this position. Maybe one or two I've seen. Maybe one. But this seems to be widespread through academia. I'm like, where did this all come from? This like, it's all, is you know, BLM Chicago. It's all completely Israel's fault. No mention, as you said, of like terrorism and innocent civilians being slaughtered and they didn't ask for anything. It's like, where where does this sentiment come from? Well, they do. It like bubbled from nothing, like from, it to me shocked me. I'm like, I, I spend a lot of time with the American left. We have a sizable leftist audience mm-hmm. that also watches this show. I feel like I know you guys decently well, don't agree all the time, but it, I don't get shocked like this to see a huge constituency of these student groups outright, immediately, no questions asked, like this is 100% on Israel. I'm like, what? what is going on here? It's just sectarian. Yeah. That's it. I mean, it's the same as, so a few things I want to say. So first of all, um, there has been a lot of this discourse on the left. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. These are, there is no one who holds power in Washington, D.C. that actually holds this view. And you saw AOC coming out against like some of the rhetoric from DSA in New York City. And they should, I think. Even the most, even the statements that went the furthest in support of Palestinians, like from Cori Bush Mm -hmm. and Rashida Tlaib, who herself is Palestinian American acknowledged the atrocities committed by Hamas, but tried to situate that in the broader context of why you need peace in the region and you need Palestinians to also have their humanity recognized, which is, you know, certainly my view and my position. And it should be a simple one of just like, I'm opposed to war crimes on both sides. Um, But it's just, it's purely sectarian. Mm. People decide these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. And I think there's also a reaction because Palestinians are murdered all the time and no one notices or cares, year after year. And if you look at the graphs of, you know, Israeli casualties in this ongoing conflict versus Palestinian casualties, there's no comparison. Thousands and every year, thousands more Palestinians killed than Mm -hmm. Israelis in this conflict. So I think it also comes out of this sense of like, you know, you all didn't care when it was the Palestinians, no one cared. And now everyone cares. And it should be, but rather than being like, so I'm not going to care about Mm -hmm. these ones now, it should be, we should all care about all the humanity all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. I think, you know, the fact that the, the other thing that gets erased is, as I was saying, this view has no power in terms of like elected officials in government as much as people want to pretend that this is the view of AOC or this is the view of Ilhan Omar. It's not. They've never said anything like this. They've been critical of groups that have set, you know, been just completely like on mm-hmm. the side of the Palestinians without acknowledging Israeli humanity. The other genocidal view of like wipe out all the Palestinians and who cares about civilian life is the majority sentiment in Washington. It's, you know, expressed not only by people like Lindsey Graham, but um, tacitly is embraced by Joe Biden, who has nothing to say uh, in critical uh, of a critical nature of the complete siege that is being executed on Gaza right now. So. You know, there's there's two very sectarian and overtly genocidal parts of this discourse, and one of them has a lot more power in government than the other one. I think that's fair. No, I, I absolutely think that's fair, and uh, that's why I do. Th- yeah, yeah, I think it's absolutely correct. It's true because you know the same level of condemnation doesn't come through, and 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 I also you know, you'll rarely hear this, but I was getting annoyed because people were like, Rashida Tlaib is, you know, co-signing the DSA. And I'm like, that's not what she said. I judge people based on what they say. Yeah. Her statement was like, 
yeah, it was pro-Palestinian. It also expressed a lot of like sorrow for the lives lost in Israel. Yeah. AOC said the same thing. So have you. So it's Ryan. And I'm like, the dominant view that I see from the commentariat and from the electorate has nothing to do with, that's why I was just so shocked by it. I'm like, yeah. I don't understand where this comes from. It's like, it's just so maddening and insane to me that they could just immediately come out and just be like, no, it's all Israel's fault. And basically they were like, they deserved it. And that is just such a disgusting you know, thing to say. I agree with you, though. It's it's equally disgusting when people uh, are like innocent Palestinians deserve the, to basically be wiped off the face of the earth as, as a result of this, which you see yeah. all the time. And one gets scrutiny and the other doesn't. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was uh, a lot of attention, rightfully so, paid to this was actually a rally that was in Australia, but yeah. you saw some bad things said at some rallies here as well. Um, but where they're actively chanting, "Gas the Jews and f the Jews." Let's watch a little bit of that. So gas the Jews, okay? There, Insane. No I mean, disgusting. Right? Like there are yeah. no words, no words for the disgusting nature of that kind of rhetoric, which, as I said, got. I mean, I saw this clip on a loop all over yeah. social media all the time. But there were Israeli protesters who were expressing equally genocidal intent towards Palestinians, which again is a viewpoint that is held by a lot of by most of Washington, um, whether expressly or de facto. And that gets next to zero attention. Take a listen to what some of the pro-Israel uh, protesters had to say. What do you think the response should be from Netanyahu and the military to God? Kill Palestinians, all of them. Not one left from the river to the sea, Palestine will be deceased. And Israel need to do like this, you see? Now Gaza, like this, Gaza need to do like this. Oh, oh, like this, but all this, Jewish. So he's pointing there to pictures on his phone of Gaza literally obliterated, wiped out, and turned into a parking lot. Or he says that it can remain, but it has to be no, no Arabs, no Muslims, only Jews. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there should be no, like, this is so basic. How about we're against genocide? Whether it's Hamas, whether it's Palestinians, whether it's Israelis, how about no? How about no genocide? How about we abandon this just like nakedly tribal sectarian thinking? How about we apply the same standards to both sides? I mean, these um, the Harvard students who put out mm -hmm. that statement that again, I have huge... It was insane, let's be real, yeah. No, yeah. no qualms there, okay. Yeah. Um, there, you now have billionaires, yes, including Bill Ackman. Bill Ackman, but a whole bunch of other CEOs who are like, this uh, the statement was put out anonymously. He's like, we need to dox them so that we can make sure that they are never hired. Okay, yes. someone is paying for a truck to drive around in Boston with their names and faces on them, branding them as anti-Semites. And I'm not seeing the same uh, Republican concern about cancel culture on this one as I have in other situations here, Sagar. I think that's fair. Uh, I will say, you know, they created it. They started this game, so it's like- But you, you know, never you say that about sell. the other uh, no, I'm cancel not, I'm not justifying it. I'm saying that's what people are saying. Uh, that's what the response, because I asked my friends who, uh, who are like very happy about this. I'm like, well, you know, I've heard you guys get upset about cancel culture. Uh, the one, So the only reason I think it is somewhat amusing is, and Josh Barrow said this, he's like, there's something deeply discontinent uh, between someone who is like all in on Palestinian justice, but also 
who is working and is at Harvard Law and gets their job canceled by going to work for like big law to work in the accounting division for ExxonMobil or something like that. Yeah, so they're talking about there's this one girl who yeah. had her job offer rescinded right, exactly. because of her because whatever. Of I don't even know what her statement she was. She actually publicly but, signed it, to be honest. Yeah. She, she publicly signed the whatever and made her uh, support clear. And a law firm, by the way, which is also run heavily by a Jewish uh, like members and uh, partners, but also has a lot of clients were like, we are not going to employ this person. This is where, and this is where, look, even on all the whole cancel culture discourse, it was always very difficult. For example, um, there was this guy, Kyle Kashuv. I don't know if anybody knows who he is. Uh, I've met him a couple of times. He was one of the Parkland kids. And he was like the conservative Parkland kid. He actually had his acceptance, I believe to Harvard, rescinded because he made like a racist joke in a G-chat when he was like 15 years old. Now, I also, though, don't see, a lot of people cheered for him to get his acceptance rescinded, you know, at that time, which I think is outrageous and ridiculous. But now they're like, oh, this is awful. So I agree. I think we should apply the same thing to both sides. I will say, this is where I try and parse it. I think if you're a law student, that you have a more developed brain and you're old enough to know better than to get involved in this type of nonsense, like to be signing on to the general. But if you're an undergrad, I don't know, maybe I'm too forgiving, but Anyone under 22, it's like, look, we all said a lot of stupid things when we were 22 years old. So those people, I think we should leave them alone. I don't think uh, you should be blacklisted from ever working for your entire life, yeah, which yeah. is what, like, Bill Ackman is I advocating for. And, uh, the, law, the law students one, that one is just, because to me, they're all trying to go work in the Fortune 500 and all of that. And I'm just like, what, you're stupid enough to sign on to something like this? You still want to go work for Nike Corporation or for Wachtell Lippmann or something like that? I'm like, eh, I don't know. I don't have as much sympathy for those folks. But I, I will say, for the undergrads, Anyone under 22, I think they should be left alone. That's your line. 100%. Yeah, I mean, well, what do you think? I think if you're 25, you should know better. And you're well enough of a developed adult. You know how the world works. But what are you advocating for? That they should, like, never work or that they could lose their job now? Uh, Well, I think that if they are dumb enough to basically, like, openly, like, call and say that it's Israel's fault, then they shouldn't be surprised when they get their offer rescinded by a majority Jewish firm, especially with clients who may even work in some cases with Israeli companies. At that point, in my opinion, you're old enough to know the realities of the world and you shouldn't be dumb enough to be doing this. By the way, if you believe in it enough that you were wanting to uh, lose your job for it, go for it. I don't I don't care. Um, but I think, though, that the people who are really pushing this, one of the ways that they're taking it way too far is by targeting 18, 19-year-olds mm-hmm. who have signed on. And that is where I, I'm upset because I'm like, listen, these are freaking kids. Every Dumb things are in vogue when we're 18 or 19. I think everyone should get a pass. Well, I think what it one. illustrates like, is the cancel yeah. culture conversation is a little more nuanced. Oh, totally. It's sometimes portrayed. Like, sometimes you say things that are egregious enough that, okay, there mm-hmm. are some consequences and you're, uh, you know, old enough person that you should understand that there could be consequences yes. from your actions, right? But I don't often see it portrayed that way no. with that level mm-hmm. of nuance, especially from the right where it's very like, no, there should be no, con- like you shouldn't have a professional consequence in particular because sometimes it's also just an objection to like, you know, shaming online, which mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to say is not like a brutal experience, mm-hmm. but here you have direct like, we want you to be blacklisted from ever working or being hired by anyone ever doxxed and blacklisted and branded an anti-Semite and we're gonna fund a truck to drive around the town branding you an anti-Semite. 
I just, uh, I think that conversation would be going a little bit different if it was on the other side and it was like, you know, somebody's face and branded like a white supremacist for some racist remarks totally. that they said. And, you know, we're going to dox them and we're going to make sure that they can never work again. I have a feeling the right would have a little bit of a different view if that was the situation. You're right. BDS has always been the biggest glaring blind spot on free speech conversation from the right. There are multiple laws on the books in states in the United States. Glenn yeah. Greenwald does some fantastic work on this about uh, BDS laws that were on the books. I believe Abby Martin successfully, was it Georgia? Georgia? And got that law correctly rescinded, of which, by the way, the Israeli government has been pushing in America. And that has always ticked me off because I I'm like, it's listen. it's always succeeded in court when it's been tested. As it should be. Yeah. And this is what I always say, you know, I've had said even in the past to some of my Israeli friends. I'm like, listen, you guys do what you want. You can call us anti-Semites and all that other stuff, but do not you dare try and come to our country and infringe on our free speech rights by lobbying for this type of legislation in our Congress. Because maybe we'll start doing the same in yours. Maybe yeah. we should. You know, it's like, but then they would be like, oh, the Americans are interfering. I'm like, okay, well, you know, you can't complain then whenever uh, the, the roles are reversed if you're going to do that to us. Katie Halper, fired from the Hill. Oh, yeah, that was over. And this were not, yeah, this was not over the yeah. line. It's no, only, yeah, you know, right. what, justifying atrocities. It was just like recognizing Palestinian mm -hmm. humanity. Um, Nathan Robinson let go from The Guardian. Oh, I didn't know that. As a columnist. Mm. Um, Ken Roth, who we mm -hmm. uh, rely on on this show for very nuanced, professional, fact-based commentary, I think, um, you know, was uh, he had had a university position that was uh, turfed because of concerns over him being pro-Palestinian. At Harvard, ironically. <laughs> yeah. now, I think they walked it back, remember, under public Well, then pressure. they were like, okay, no, now you can work here. And he was like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, so listen, cancel culture when it comes to uh, st support for Palestine is very real and very, uh, very often ignored. Absolutely, right. That. Okay, we've got some other big domestic political slash YouTube news, which we kind of got accidentally <laughs> to break on this show, which is that Cenk Uygur, the founder of the Young Turks, put this up on the screen, is actually running for president. This Oops. is from Semaphore. Dave Weigel here. Um, he's running as a Democrat. He is challenging Joe Biden in the primary. Now with RFK Jr. exiting that primary and running as an independent, that leaves Jenk and Marianne Williamson as Joe Biden's uh, two opponents. Uh, I actually listened to his whole, he spent an hour with Anna on the main show mm -hmm. last night. She asked him some very tough questions. Um, I don't want to speculate on how she feels about it, but the mood from her end was not super upbeat uh -huh. um, because, you know, she lived through like his congressional run, which was very difficult on him. And the way the media treated him was extremely ugly. They dug, of course, as you know, they dug up everything they possibly could that he's ever said over his long career, being a commentator, et cetera. It was not pretty. I'm sure it was very difficult for her as well. Anyway, um, Cenk, as he did on our show, explained kind of why he's getting in and what his strategy is going to be, what he's aiming for. Let's take a listen to that. The idea is to create enough pressure on Biden. And here's how you get the pressure. One of the ways you get the pressure is everybody thinks that I have almost no chance of winning, right? Well, let's keep it real. Everybody knows that, right? They're like, oh, your name is funny. You weren't born here. You're a progressive. You're an outsider, et cetera, et cetera, right? If I get to 20 or 25, panic sets in. There's no question panic sets in because there's two things that happen there. One, the other candidates go, well, Biden is enormously weak, right? Number two is Biden begins to realize the handwriting's on the wall. If this Jank Uger, who probably he probably can't pronounce, has gotten to 25, the handwriting's on the wall. He's gotta go. And by the way, Anna, the reason why this is realistic 
is because there are a lot of people in Washington inside the establishment that are trying to get Joe Biden to drop out. We need to help them. We need to create that pressure. So a um, few things that I'll say. First of all, let me just say, I like Jenk. On a personal, I've known Jenk for a long time. We actually overlapped at MSNBC, mm -hmm. so we go back that far. He's never been like a close friend, mm -hmm. but he gave, basically gave Kyle his start. Mm -hmm. He really helped, helped us, us out, out at the, the beginning. Days. So I just want people to know, like, I have a lot of affection for, for Cenk Uger. And I think in terms of independent media, whatever you think of his political ideology, he's a true believer That's in true. the power of independent media and a fierce critic of corporate media, you know, going back a very long time. So let me put that out. Do I think that this is going to be successful? I mean, no, I don't. And yeah. I'm, I'm sad to say, like, I think that the... Launching, especially right now, with the news moment that we're in, he's likely to get very little attention. The attention he does get is going to be some mix of like scorn. It's going to be very dismissive. Um, they'll once again dig up like you know all of the things that he said over the years, which taken out of context and even sometimes in context sound really terrible. Um, which he dealt with during the congressional campaign. You know, he did run for Congress. It was not successful. So it's hard for me to see how he's gonna get a lot of traction when Marianne Williamson, who's been in there from the beginning, who has a very similar platform, by the way, and also has her own national fan base and was a best-selling author, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see why he's gonna succeed where she hasn't. It just doesn't add up for me. I completely agree with you. And uh, I actually wish I had known whenever I interviewed, just to show you, by the way, how accepting I am. I assumed he was a naturalized US, or a natural born US citizen. Someone was like, how did you not ask him uh, whether, why, uh, you know, how he could run if he was born in Turkey? I'm like, I didn't know that he was. I, I didn't assumed either. he was and from we, here. Wait, and uh, we're yeah. both so like shocked right. and surprised. Yeah, we had I was no so idea surprised. Was I had no clue. Yeah. It was, so if I had known, I would have done some research and I would definitely have asked him about it. At the time, look, I think he's fundamentally wrong. I watched it as well about the media angle in particular. He's like, look, we've got independent media now. Independent media is more powerful than it was in 2016 and 2020. But for the people he wants to reach, it's just not true. The median Democratic voter is a 55-year-old white guy with no college degree. That person, as much as I wish they were watching Breaking Points or uh, TYT or the PBD podcast or Tim Pool or any of the guy, anybody who runs the gamut, uh, they're not. They're watching cable or they're you know getting their boomer email things coming to them. So the power of institutional media, as we all found out in 2020, is still immensely powerful. Democrats still trust the media and they trust them a lot. They have 75% trust. Uh, younger Democrats, certainly, they trust people like us and many other shows, young people in general, much more trusting in independent media, but they don't vote. Uh, and so if you were to really have an impact in the primary, you actually have to start surging in the polls and get the real media attention that you deserve. I'd also say Israel-Palestine is probably the worst possible thing that could have ever happened you know, to any shot that he once had because uh, domestic politics right now is, let's look at our bar. This is the number six story. Yeah. You know, in a, in a normal time, maybe it's the number two story. Yeah. Uh, that's the truth. You know, we have we have freaking wars that we have to contend with, and there's only a certain amount of attention. So even the limited bump that he might have seen from media, it's not going to be the same. We, of course, are going to cover it. The CNN's not going to cover it, you know. Yeah. And, and the MSNBC, those are the people he really needs on his side. On the uh, natural-born citizen yeah. piece, now, he has a theory based oh, in yeah, case law this is a whole other of how the Constitution was amended in a way that should grant the same rights to naturalized citizens as natural-born citizens, which, by the way, I agree that's how it should be. Uh -huh. I have no idea whether the courts would actually find it to be that way. I mean, the text of the Constitution is quite clear, um, just like on, on its face. 
about how this would all work out. So that's an additional obstacle that he um, will have to overcome. So anyway, interesting development. You know, Cenk is certainly not going to be shy about yes. his views. I know he's going to do everything he can to get himself and his message out there. And, you know, he's really leading with just this is the other place where I disagree with him, and we got into this a little bit mm -hmm. when we had him on the show, is he is very adamant that Biden will lose. Um, I've heard him say, like, it's a certainty, it's guaranteed. On the show last night, he was more like, I think there's a 10% mm -hmm. chance he could win, but a 90% chance he could lose. I just, I just don't have that level of certainty about any, I mean, I certainly think he could lose. I certainly think he's historically weak. But I also think Trump is extremely weak. I mean, this man is facing a bunch of criminal charges and indictments, and we've seen what a psycho he is, and he lost to Joe Biden before. You're right. So to say, like, Biden has zero chance or even a 10% chance, he's an incumbent president. He's got a decent shot at winning again. So even his analysis of why he's jumping into the race, I don't fully, I'm not fully on board with. I agree. I think it's a toss-up. I think it's 50-50 right now. Uh, I e think that's Both sides right. easily could, both could easily win and both could easily lose. And anybody who doesn't grapple with that reality is really not living in it right Yeah. Now. Okay. We have another update out of the presidential contest. So as mentioned before, RFK Jr. has moved out of the Democratic primary. He is now running as an independent. He just launched this week. And um, it is official the love affair that the Republican Party was having Uber. and that Fox News was having in particular with RFK Jr. is officially over. Um, now, RFK, he has been, I think, going on with Sean Hannity for a long Years. They know each other time. well. Yeah. And seem to, yeah, know each other well. He told us they yeah, know each did. other quite well. Yeah. So anyway, went on with Sean Hannity for an interview. And Hannity, very different tone these days now that RFK is running as an independent. Let's take a listen. I hope you don't mind, but I did a little research on you. You're pretty liberal. You, you know, you've called for curbing, logging, oil drilling, uh, fracking. You wanted to eliminate it. You called it a victory for democracy. You want to curb U.S. fossil fuel extraction. Keep it in the ground, you once tweeted. You want a ban on fossil fuel extraction, a ban on fracking. You called the NRA once a terror group. You've supported over the years Democrats, Gore, Kerry, Obama, Hillary, you praised Bernie Sanders multiple times. You support affirmative action. So why is this party of yours, why didn't they even want to allow you to compete? Because that's as pretty liberal of a record as anybody I know. <laughs> you have a litany of talking points from uh, statements I've made over 40 years. Uh, some of them are stale. Uh, some of them I never said. Um, but, you know, what is your question? Why the Democratic Party? Why I'm not running at the Democratic Party? Uh, you know, well, why, I, why did they I, kick I, you I out? Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, um, by the way, I'm, I'm think, giving you comments that you made in 2016, 17, 19 uh, endorsements. We know the years Gore, Kerry, Obama, Hillary, Bernie Sanders. They're all recent quotes. The NRA quote you made about calling them a terror group was 2018. So these are these are recent positions you've had that I'm not sure why the Democratic Party wouldn't allow you what to do compete. You, do you want to do, do you want to uh, talk about my position, Sean? Yes, sir. Or, uh, yeah, yeah, do you yeah. want to read talking points from the Trump campaign? Well, excuse me. And these I, are know, not talking think... points. These are called Hannity points. I do my own research. <laughs> Hannity points. Hannity points. Uh, that's a nightmare show. Let me tell you. Hannity points. <laughs> 
Uh, wow, that was uh, things getting spicy over there. I enjoyed it actually. Um, it's just so funny how naked they are. They loved him whenever he was running against Biden. And yeah, like you said, I mean, RFK himself <laughs> told us. I don't think I'm betraying confidences. I think he said this publicly. He's like, yeah, I've had a good relationship with Fox News. He's like, I knew Roger Ailes, you know, many years ago. He's like, you know, they used to beat me up and all of that, but the Murdoch machine and I, like, anyway, he knows these people, like, on a personal level. But, yeah, I mean, when he runs independent and now Hannity in the Trump campaign knows that he's a threat to Trump because they can view the data, yeah. they're like, oh, actually, they're like, we got to remind everybody he's a liberal, folks, and start attacking him. But, I gotta give it to RFK for this. First, that was smart uh, to go on and to actually challenge and even laugh in uh, Sean's face. I actually thought it was the- He handled it Getting very defensive well, I think, is the yeah. worst thing. He, he just be like, <laughs> he's like, you're a joke, you're a clown. That's exactly uh, how to handle it. He also put out his first general election ad and you know, gotta give credit where it's due. It's really good. Let's take a listen. House Republicans continue to fight. The left is a cult. I don't want to hear it from Republicans. We'll beat the shit out of them. Time out. Helping your party. Anarchy across America. Radical Democrats. Republicans. Yeah, I was fed up too. And that's why I'm running for president of the United States as an independent. I'm Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and I approve this message. That's a great ad, Crystal. It's very effective. It's about the media. It's about division. It's about people hating each other. He doesn't say anything about what he believes. Uh, and he's just like, yeah, I'm fed up with it too. That is actually a uniting message right there. Um, so no, look, I'm not saying he's gonna win, uh, but maybe he wins more with his last name and with a message like that. The more that he does that, the better off he's gonna be. The more yeah. like vague and yes. just like, don't you hate these people too? Right. And don't you hate what they've done to us as well? I mean, who disagrees with that? No one. You can't disagree <laughs> with me. That. I'm like, huh, yeah, maybe. But yeah. then I'm like, oh, the nuclear power thing. I forgot. Yeah, let's, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. So I yeah. sort of feel like the more vague and high level he's able to keep it, the better mm -hmm. he will do. But um, let me say with regard to the Republican attacks on him and the Trump, like Trump team specifically going after him, I think it will work yeah, to cut work. down his right wing support for sure. And to rebrand him as, you know, they were making real common cause with him. They were emphasizing the views that he holds that, that I should say, I mean, are kind of like core to what he's leaning into. Yeah, he's an days. environmentalist. Like that's what he cares about the most, or at least has in the past. Has yeah. in the past on that one. Right. But I mean, the, the core views that yeah. he's been talking about are like, you know, cancel culture and censorship, which has been a real, you know, concern on the right recently. Mm. The weaponization of government. They had him testify at this like weaponization of government thing. That's true. The anti-vax views, which used to be, more lefty and now are very much more commonplace in the Republican Party um, and his complete opposition to any aid to Ukraine also codes um, right, especially in like, you know, Republican uh, elected officials context. So they were emphasizing those pieces as a way to have a cudgel against Biden. Now they're emphasizing like, yo, you endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016. How about that? And, you know, you're opposed to whatever, fracking, right. whatever his list is. You back the Green New Deal. I think that that shift in branding and labeling of him coming from the Trump people is going to work with regard to how he's mm -hmm. viewed from the right. So that's why I've always been, I have never been as certain which side Kennedy is more likely to take votes away from, I don't think it's clear cut. I think the Kennedy name is very powerful. I think this effort to smear, you know, attack him from uh, the right and label him a liberal, I think that's gonna be pretty successful. So it's just 
to me is not clear cut. Yeah, I guess that's what I would say. I think you're right. All right. Thank you everybody for watching. It's been a it's been a tough week, you know, not gonna lie, but it's not about us on a personal level. I know that so many of you are also going through a lot of emotions and how to process this. And it's a great privilege of ours to help you and just know that we're doing our absolute best. All of us are working around the clock. We've got big projects next week, like the focus group will continue to monitor everything at a breaking level. So this probably won't be the last time that you hear from us in the next couple of days. Um, and we're looking forward to that. And we also uh, really thank everyone for supporting us, you know, in critical times like this. It does mean a lot and it validates, I think, the mission that we're really trying to go for. So I'm very proud of our show this week, Crystal and I. Very proud to work with you as always. Yeah, same, Sagar. Yeah. And um, again, to our producers, Matt Griffin and the whole um, crew that is behind the show, you guys have been putting in the, lots of work. Yes. And it's, it's just, you know, it's, it is a very difficult and emotional issue to cover. And um, thank you guys for sticking with us. Um, reminder that we're not going to have our normal weekend show, but Sagar and I are going to try to, you know, hang around so that if there is any big breaking news, which seems kind of likely, that we'll yes. be able to jump on it and give you guys some updates throughout the weekend. So make sure you're looking for that as well. See you all later. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.